Gospel, chapter 5. We're going to look today at verses 21 through 26. We have uh, focused largely on this idea of this upside-down kingdom of God in contrast to what we perceive to be the right-side-up uh, kingdom we experience in the here and now. In reality, the reverse is true. The world is on its head, and the kingdom of God is right-side-up, but Jesus is here addressing our uh, perception of things. We see things in a certain way. We have certain ideas, and what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is to turn that on its head. In Matthew chapter 7, in the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Mount, Matthew observes that they were astonished at his teaching, and rightly so. For he taught as one having great authority, and he did not teach like the scribes. Now, in what we have looked at so far in the Sermon on the Mount, we've again talked about this upside-down kingdom, how things in the kingdom are just way different than they are in the world. Three basic principles, right? We are radically new people in Jesus. We have uh, citizenship in a radically new kingdom because of Jesus. And as a result of our kingdom citizenship, we have a radically different worldview. We see the world differently because we're radically different people, washed by the blood of the Lamb with, with new eyes and, and new priorities, a different focus about our life. Now, what Jesus is going to begin to do in Matthew 5, verses 21 and following, is to take certain perceptions of Old Testament commands and then drive them deeper to the heart level. The error of the Pharisees, with whom Jesus often did battle, was that they had externalized religious practice. In other words, they had made religion about the things that you do or you don't do. And what Jesus begins to do, citing various Old Testament passages, is to drive these external concepts into the heart of his hearers, noting that being a follower of Jesus is not so much about what we do or what we don't do, but with who we are in our innermost, with who we are in our very heart. You'll hear this language over and over and over again in the remainder of Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said of old. In each case, referencing a specific Old Testament passage. Jesus then taking up the perception uh, or the explanation of that Old Testament passage as it was understood in the first century, and for that matter, as it's understood by many even today, and then saying, it's not what you think. In fact, if, if there's a theme that sort of summarizes what remains of Matthew chapter 5, it is this. Things are likely not what you think they are. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. If you found your way there, let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 21, the Bible says, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, You moron, will be subject to hell fire. So if you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him 
or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. I assure you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Jesus is absolutely the master at speaking on multiple levels at the same time. You see him doing this when people ask questions. Jesus provides a practical answer to the actual question that they ask while at the same time getting to the heart of the issue, answering the question that's really in the heart of the person who asked but wasn't bold enough to ask what they wanted to ask. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks on multiple levels in the next several paragraphs. There is the practical level to which Jesus speaks, which we're going to address first, and then the deeper spiritual level. Look down to verse number 21. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said to our ancestors or to those of old, do not murder, or as more commonly remembered, thou shalt not kill. You have heard that it was said to those of old, thou shalt not kill, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Jesus appeals to this universally agreed-upon command, thou shalt not kill. Virtually everyone, there's universal adoption of this command as good and upright and morally acceptable, thou shalt not kill. It takes a, a truly sordid and sinister mind to make exceptions to that command. And so Jesus begins there where there would be agreement, universal agreement, in the goodness of that moral command, thou shalt not kill. And whoever kills, whoever murders, will be subject to judgment. We all agree at this point, right? I would add from a Christian worldview, from a biblical perspective, that this command is binding from the moment of conception until one's last breath is breathed by the providential direction of God. Amen. Thou shalt not kill. And whoever does will be subject, the Bible says, to judgment. But Jesus says it goes further than this in verse 22. He says, I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. There seem to be three levels to which Jesus speaks here. The person who harbors anger in his heart toward a brother is subject to judgment. By implication, the judgment of God in some way, in a way that is presumably lesser than the judgment of hell's fire. But there is a judgment that is to come, Jesus says, with harboring anger and hostility in our heart toward others. But for the person who would verbalize their hostility, saying of their brother, fool, that person then becomes subject to the Sanhedrin or to the council. In other words, criminal civil charges may be brought against the person who acts on their hostility towards someone else. But Jesus says the third and deeper level of this is for the one who says, you moron, in various translations will render that differently. It's a very offensive way to make reference to a person. It's it's intended to be an insult, but it is among the most severe of insults that might be offered. That person, Jesus says, is subject to the severest of God's judgment, 
that they'd be cast into hell's fire. Now, we're going to come back to this concept in the end of our message, but that's, that's pretty severe stuff. And then verse 23 says, So if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Now, I want you to notice first in, first in verse number 23 that Jesus says, if you're there before the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you. Jesus did not say, if you are there before the altar and remember that you have something against your brother. Now, there have been a few times through the years when addressing this passage and other passages like it, there have been those who were a little overzealous in their efforts at making application of this passage, who had, for reasons unbeknownst to the other person, harbored anger and bitterness and hostility toward that person for some extended period of time. And they would feel in that moment compelled somehow to go and to bear their heart to that other person. Now, I just want to say to you before this sort of gets out of hand in your heads and hearts this morning that your bitterness, that your anger, that your hostility is in many ways your problem. Yeah. needs to be addressed within your heart without burdening the person you have unnecessarily become bitter and angry and hostile towards. Deal with the issue within your own heart without dragging others into the muck and the mire and the misery of your own bitterness. Jesus says, if you're there before the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Jesus does not say again, there, remember that your brother has something reasonable against you. How many unreasonable situations, unreasonable expectations create bitterness and hostility and the kind of offense before us in our passage. Jesus says, rather, if you are before the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, not that you have something against him, not that he is justified in what he has against you, but you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. Jesus is saying that as followers of Christ, as kingdom citizens, we are to be people of peace who pursue reconciliation wherever there is a danger of irreconciliation. Not just that people would be reconciled to the Father through Jesus Christ, but that we as brothers would be reconciled one with another, that we would be reconciled as much as is possible with the world around us. Remember, we've been called to be the salt of the earth pressing against the substance of, of this world. Be people of peace, Jesus says. Now, um, almost without exception, we run into situations where there's simply nothing that we can do about our brother being offended against us. I'm going to get these questions if I'm not careful to address them. Someone's going to ask of me, Pastor, I have sought reconciliation, and it, it, it just simply cannot be found. There are those cases. There are people with whom we simply cannot be reconciled. In some cases, you might even come to me and say, Pastor, this person is offended against me because of my belief in the gospel or because of my conviction to biblical values. And that's a, that's a 
perfectly good reason that a person would be offended against us, a perfectly good reason for you to be at peace with a person's offense against you. But dear brothers and sisters, let it always be that if a person is offended at you, it's truly because of your belief in the gospel and your commitment to Christian values and not your prickly personality. When it's the gospel, when it's a commitment to biblical values, this falls under the heading of blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of things against you falsely on my account for righteousness' sake. But for heaven's sake, let's be endearing people, compassionate and understanding, people of peace who do everything within our power to make ourselves lovable to the world around us. Jesus says, if you are before the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, first go and be reconciled, then you may, you may then come and offer your gift. This whole business of reconciliation and being at peace one with another has a religious context. The altar in Jesus' day is a direct reference to the altar in the temple where sacrifice would be made, the only acceptable place for worship. Jesus says, if you're there, prepare to give your sacrifice of worship and remember that there's a party offended against you. It is your obligation to go and to seek reconciliation or your sacrifice is meaningless. And what he's noting for us, there's a great principle here. True religion requires a heart that is free from hostility. We almost always talk about this in the context of celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's one of Paul's great problems with the Corinthian church, that they're coming to the Lord's table, taking the bread that represented the body of Jesus, drinking of the cup that represented the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, our means of recon reconciliation. And they came to the table without truly being reconciled one with another. You can't come to the Lord's table with divisions. And you cannot offer a meaningful sacrifice of worship, harboring hostility and anger and bitterness in your heart. There are real challenges here for us, right? Because for many of us, our commitment to faith in Jesus sets us at odds with the culture of our families. Your commitment to following Jesus puts you on the outside looking in in the workplace or even at times within the context of school and, and academics. And it can be a difficult thing when you are on the outside looking in with very little in common with the people that you are most often surrounded by to be endearing and patient and long-suffering with all of the frustrations that come with that experience. But that is precisely what Jesus has called us here to be. If you're offering your gift, bringing your gift before the altar, and remember that someone is offended against you, listen, pursue reconciliation. I have no doubt in my mind that in this congregation, in this service, there are people who have relatives, former friends, with whom you've not spoken for years. And if that's their decision and beyond your control, there's simply nothing that you can do about it. But it ought to never be the result of the decisions, of the choices, of the things that we do, the things that we've said, of the prickly nature of, of our personalities. 
as much as is possible, pursue reconciliation. Jesus is here calling us away from this kind of bitterness that sets up in our hearts and festers and overwhelms us and makes us into something we never intended to be in the first place. He continues in verse 25, reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. I assure you, you will never get out of there until you've paid the last penny. Well, what's that all about? Come to terms with your accuser quickly, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, you're thrown into prison. And Jesus says, just for good measure, you won't ever get out until you've paid the last penny. It's kind of a poetic way, an illustrative way of saying, this thing will get out of control on you before you realize what has happened. While you're on your way to court, it would be wise for you to reach a settlement with your accuser. If there is any way possible before this thing gets out of control, reconcile with your brother. And this is how it works, right? Some little minor offense happens in our experience, and we get hung up on that and we focus on that. And getting hung up on that minor offense makes us begin to look with crystal clear eyes for other opportunities to be offended. And the next thing you know, days and weeks and years have passed by, and you've accumulated a long list of reasons to be angry and bitter and hostile, only now your bitterness is not only directed at the person who offended you originally, but with everyone in your life. I am firmly convinced that bitterness is among the most dangerous sins named among men. Because of the way it festers and overwhelms, it lays hold of our heart. You heard me talk about my, my granny. I, I grew up, my most formative years were with my granny and my grandfather. You don't hear me talk much about, about him. In the last Eight or ten years of his life were just absolutely miserable for him and for virtually anyone that he was close to. And I, and I, I will always, his life ended in suicide, and I will, I will go to my grave believing that the sin of bitterness killed my grandfather. When he was 15 years old, his, his mother died. His father had died about two years before that. He was the middle child. He had an older brother who was old enough to be independent and on his own at that point, and a younger sister who was a little easier to manage than he was. And he lay in his bedroom as the aunts and uncles sat on the front porch of that wood house and discussed what they were going to do with the children. There was a quick volunteer to take the daughter in to receive her into the care of their home, but aunts and uncles all agreed that my grandfather was just too much for them to handle. And he sat and he listened through the wood walls of that home at that conversation unfold on the front porch. And he never let himself get over that conversation, that experience, until the day that he died. He could have a conversation with you on one day that ended as pleasantly as any conversation that you would ever imagine. But the sin of bitterness would manipulate and distort that conversation so much so that within 24 hours there was something for him to be greatly offended by in the conversation that had happened the day before. And dear brothers and sisters, that is how bitterness works. Hallucination comes shortly after bitterness. 
And if you are this morning harboring resentment, hostility, and hatred in your heart, if you allow that to fester, if it stays there for long at all, it will overwhelm you, it will consume you, it will control you, and in due time, it will kill you. I realize that some of you have been through some dreadful things. And quite frankly, I've been through some dreadful things. But those things don't have to define you. Those things don't have to control you. And the sooner you're able to set those things in your past, the better off you're going to be. And frankly, the more effective you're going to be as a kingdom citizen. I'm so glad that not only is there freedom from the bondage of sin in Jesus, there is freedom from all the stains and scars of our past. And I want you to know this morning that in Jesus Christ, by his shed blood, all things stand to be made new by faith in his name and his resurrection. There is hope for you no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you. There is freedom and forgiveness and resurrection life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, you better deal with this problem of bitterness before it gets out of hand. It'll happen before you realize what's happened. One of the most helpful ways of diagnosing bitterness in my experience is the ability for the individual to talk about what was said, what the people involved were wearing, what the weather was like on that given day, where everyone was standing, how everything unfolded with precision. They can recall the moments uh, through which they were offended in that particular scenario. And I'm just warning you, I'm just warning you, when that begins to set in, it will overwhelm you. That's the practical level of what Jesus is describing. That true religion, that real worship, demands of us a heart that is free from hostility. And if you're tinkering with, if you're playing around with bitterness and anger and frustration, you had best be careful. It will lay hold of your heart and overwhelm you before you realize what's happened. We played baseball all day yesterday, and so I'm, I'm wearing two hats. I'm in the first base coach's box, and I'm thinking about this passage, right? I'm probably thinking a little too much about this passage and, uh, and the opposing coach attempted to pull the hidden ball trick, which is trashy, right? It's youth baseball. It's Bush League. And it made me mad. And I started watching. And I found at least a dozen reasons to be mad at the opposing team before the game was over. And I thought about this passage. And I'm telling you, it happens that quickly, that quickly, that quickly. Be endearing people as followers of Jesus Christ and be quick to forgive because God knows we need it. That's the practical level. But there's a spiritual level here that's really primary to what Jesus seeks to communicate to his hearers and what I believe the Bible seeks to communicate to us here this morning. Let's go back to the beginning of our passage in verse number 21. And the Bible says, you've heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But what I'm telling you is this, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. 
And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the council or the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. What Jesus is saying is this. Even if you're, managed, if you, if you're able to manage going the full length of your life without ever killing someone else, and I hope that all of you will have that shared experience, you still have the problem of who you are in your heart. You may feel justified because, hey, you haven't killed anyone. But in your heart, what Jesus says is that you are a hell-bound hater, both of God and man. The anger, the frustration, the hostility in your heart toward others condemns you under the same command that condemns even the most heinous of sinners. We have made celebrities of killers in our society. If I say to you, Charles Manson or John Wayne Gacy or any number of other names of famed serial killers, immediately it brings to your mind the idea of, of fright and fear. And there have been documentaries and various movies that have run over the last week with the Halloween um, holiday, if you can call Halloween a holiday, being now just behind us, those sort of frightful and, and evil and wicked things have sort of been brought before us and celebrated in some way in our society over the past days. You know immediately who it is that I refer to. But what Jesus does in our passage is to play the Nathan to our David. You think in your mind at this moment about the names that I just mentioned, and you immediately associate those names with evil, with what is wicked, with what is hellish. And we would agree universally that there's a hot corner in the hell for people who commit such crimes. Jesus agrees. And then he says, you're the man. It's you. It's you. It's you. It's, it's me. Jesus plays the Nathan to our David. He takes the most awful example, murder. And he says, we all agree that those who are guilty of murder are deserving of hell's fire and God's judgment against them and even the working of justice in this world. But that's you and that's me. Mankind has this incredible and uncanny ability to justify our sin. It started way back in the garden. Adam and Eve ate a forbidden fruit, and Adam said, it's that woman you gave me. And ultimately, together, they blamed it on God. You, you gave me the woman. She led me to eat it. And, and, and from the dawn of creation, we've, we've been passing the buck. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard through the years some of the most wicked people that I've ever known observe of themselves, I'm really a, a good person at heart. He's just a, he's just a good person. There was a, a gentleman that sort of ran in the circle that I ran in as a young man, had a fairly heavy hand in helping me begin to participate in all kinds of ungodliness who was discovered in the past couple of years to have killed two women in the Midwest. And I, and I, heard, I heard old friends say of him, he's just a good guy. And, and, and saw where he was quoted reflecting of himself much the same. Deep down, I'm, I'm a really good person. 
Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that deep down we're just as rotten as we are on the outside. That your heart is black as soot with sin. That you are broken and separated from God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you feel the weight of what Jesus is saying in our passage? The consequences of Jesus' observation of mankind are immense. One, as a church, we're reminded that we cannot labor our way to the Father. That if we are this broken, as Jesus has described us in the passage, we have nothing that would commend us to God. There is nothing about us that would be pleasing or appealing to God. There's not a scintilla of a second of our life upon which God would look and say, there's a scintilla of a second that merits salvation. Bring him to heaven. Grant him forgiveness and mercy and love and joy. Nothing about us would commend us to God. It's only the blood of Jesus Christ. For those who don't believe, for the unbeliever, There is the promise held forth that in spite of how greatly we have sinned against God and we have all sinned greatly against God, that there is mercy and love and compassion and forgiveness and grace to be found through Jesus Christ. Things are not what you think they are, Jesus says. Being right with God is not about managing to not kill people. Being right with God is about being a new person in our innermost, having a new heart by the gift of the new birth and regeneration, being born again by the power of the Spirit of God. This is the message of Christ, not only in this paragraph, but in the paragraphs that follow after. Jesus does a similar thing with adultery in verses 27 and following. He does a similar thing with divorce and remarriage in verses 31 and 32. He does the same thing with oaths and swearing, letting our yes be yes and our no be no in verses 33 and following. He does the same with our concept of doing good to friends and neighbors, but looking poorly upon our enemies and those who oppose us in verses 38 and following. Things are not what you think they are. Your convictions, your worldview, your perceptions, your ideas need to be measured against the teaching of the Scripture. In my experience, even where we labor long and hard to say that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, there remains in us as men and women this want to believe that there is somehow and some way that we can win by our actions the favor of God. Now, I want you to hear me clearly this morning as we note together that the favor of God has been won in history past at the cross of our Lord Jesus, where the bitter cup of his wrath against us was drank. The body of our Savior was bruised to be followed soon after by his resurrection from the tomb. That's where the favor of God rests. If our sins, even our most subtle sins, our most respectable sins, call for the kind of judgment that Jesus describes in our passage, what does this say about the depth of suffering that our Lord endured as the wrath of God was poured out against him? What did Jesus bear with on the cross? 
if your moment of frustration in Memphis traffic last week would demand hell's fire and great judgment? What, what is the composite effect of all of our sins, and not just our sins individually, but the sins of mankind? What flood of wrath does that deserve? And yet it's the flood of God's wrath against us that Jesus embraced and drank in full to the last drop at the cross on our behalf. Aren't you glad for what the Father has done to see his people reconciled to himself? Church, be reminded today of how amazing God's grace really is toward us. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you've never come to him and asked for forgiveness and mercy, know that he's glad to grant it. Come and drink from the fountain of the water of life. And the Bible says, drink freely. There's a drink for all who thirst. Jesus said, you're the man, you and me and all of mankind, hell-bound haters of God and man apart from Jesus Christ. But there is grace, grace and there is mercy to be found in Christ. Come to him. Let's pray.